The Scotiabank Contact Photography Festival returns this May with more than 140 exhibitions throughout the Greater Toronto Area. For its 26th edition, Contact continues its commitment to supporting an exceptional range of projects by Canadian and international lens-based artists and a diverse array of exhibitions in museums, galleries, outdoor installations, and alternative spaces. American artist Tyler Mitchell will be featured in a multifaceted exhibition titled Cultural Turns that includes works on view at the Contact Gallery, April 28th to June 30th. Organized by British curator and cultural historian Mark Seeley, the project represents the artist's first solo exhibition in Canada and his first public installation work. All of the festival's exhibitions and programs are free of charge and open to the public, with some exceptions at major museums. Visit scotiabankcontactphoto.com for more information on this year's festival. Welcome to Momus the Podcast. I am your host, Sky Gooden. And I'm Lauren Wetmore. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> we are your hosts. <laughs> I broke protocol. Uh, Lauren, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. I'm really well. Really well. Are we, are we aggressively? I'm so fucking good, you wouldn't believe it. <laughs> this week, we're uh, pulling back the curtain slightly. Mm. Um, and we're going to be talking to someone from inside Momus, <laughs> as opposed to the other weeks where we talk to us inside Momus. <laughs> not distinguishing enough. I'm trying to work up a hook here. <laughs> it's like if you're, if you're in a little sheet fort on your bed and you realize there's a third person in there with you. <laughs> Ah, here. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Rahel mm. occupies a, a more rarefied space within the MoMA's sheet fort. <laughs> Rahel Ama is associate editor at MoMA's, and she has published some really memorable pieces with MoMA's. I remember in particular a critical piece about research art of Hito Styral that was um that was very well read. And I know that Rahel also is an, like an extremely prolific writer. I'm jealous and in awe of the amount that she is able to produce. And also within this interview that you're about to introduce, mm. but allow me to mm. <laughs> spoil, <laughs> she gives a really good tip on how to get over that block of starting a piece. She gives a, a really good writer's tip. But anyways, Sky, from all of this voluminous material, uh, what piece did you decide to focus on with Rahel? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good question, because in the last couple of years alone, she's published some real zingers for us. Um, Hito Steyerl, as you mentioned, and another on Tony Koch's and sort of the futility of art about Trump. And uh, and and then this piece that that, in fact, we chose to talk about, about um, Felix Gonzalez Torres. The piece is called Depleting Felix Gonzalez Torres, and we published it in July 2020. Um, and it's one of many pieces that you can source online about this particular artwork, which actually like was one of our hurdles in, in trying to kind of get down to the, the root of this, of this piece, which was, I guess, initially made in 1990. Can you say anything for, 
our listeners about your understanding of the piece? Yeah. So um, this work, as you said, from the 1990s, it's called Untitled Fortune Cookie Corner. And um, the idea is that a number of fortune cookies are piled in a corner in a space, be it a gallery or a public space, and visitors are welcome to take a fortune cookie and eat it. And in so doing, they deplete the artwork and the artwork disappears. So this is a later iteration of one of Felix Gonzalez Torres's best known works, um, his elegiac series, which was started in 1991 by this really important piece called Untitled Portrait of Ross in LA. And this is similarly a pile of candies that are piled in a corner and the weight of the candies is meant to be about 175 pounds. Um, and it is really interesting to see the way that this work and the fortune cookie work are talked about because a lot of descriptions of the work talk about it as like, you know, an idea of disappearance, of mourning, of elegy. And then they say that this 175 pounds of candy is is supposed to be the sort of like normal weight of a man. I keep on seeing that in didactics, like the can the amount of candies uh, weighs that much because that's the normal weight of a man. And it's like, <laughs> no, it's a portrait of Ross, <laughs> the artist's lover who died of AIDS-related complications. And so these candies sort of represent his body. And as visitors take a candy, his body disappears. And as his body disappears, and as you eat the candy, you're also bringing that body into your own body. And that can be, you know, a feeling of denial of this idea of, of AIDS as a disease that leaves people untouchable, um, that leaves bodies separated from, from humanity, um, that you would take the representation of this body into your own. Um, and I think that that's such a huge part of, of that work that I didn't even realize that we're not talking about that anymore. (laughs) It's fucked. So I think that this, this, uh, this fortune cookie corner piece that, um, that Rahel talks about in this work is we can understand it in the same way, certainly, even though it's perhaps not directly related to, you know, Felix Gonzalez Torres's partner. Um, and then we can also, of course, understand it to have, I guess, have been launched in some kind of um, response to an idea of bodies in times of um, illness. Because the whole project was curated by Andrea Rosen, um, who co-represents Felix Gonzalez Torres's estate with David Swerner um, during COVID times, like during deep COVID lockdown. It's true. We've gotten so far away from um, the original intention or at least like profile of this work, um, in part just because like mega gallerists like Andrea Rosen and most notably David Warner have like just the footprint of this um, reiteration in 2020 on Google alone. <laughs> it's so yeah. monstrous that you cannot like wade through all of the sort of Instagramification of this Um of this most recent project, which is which is depressing to say the least, and it becomes essentially the the focus of Rahel's piece. It's not um, the work itself, but rather it's kind of misuse. Um... Oh my god! Okay, so this is perfect. There's this, <laughs> there's this piece 
in art net news. All respect, but come on. There's no there's no telling where you might encounter the mound of Chinese desserts, all free for the taking. Rosen, who's curating the show, has asked 1,000 people around the world to install the work in a location of their choosing. Homes, art institutions, and public spaces are all fair game. Fair game? Ew. <laughs> <laughs> This may sound unconventional, but oh my God, I could go on. <laughs> Anyways, this work <laughs> in just that way was ferried around the world to a lucky 1000, I guess. And and then they were um, shared those, those cookie mounds, Chinese desserts <laughs> <laughs> on the gram. <laughs> it's so vile. Anyway... <laughs> Ralph <laughs> just skewers it pretty damn well. <laughs> she really say. does. <laughs> You're just going to have to enjoy it, I think. Like, summarizing this doesn't do it justice, but it's a very, it's a, it's a flick of the wrist that um, I've come to really appreciate from her. Like, a clipped authority. But I was really interested in what she was saying in this interview about how she is actually, like, <laughs> sorry. No, but I think that's exactly it. Like it, it's so it's so laughable, yeah, and grotesque. Um, this <laughs> yeah. kind of like rearrangement of um, <laughs> of like the syntax of an artwork in order for it to <laughs> because because that she that Andrea Rosen's like this will help you combat loneliness. <laughs> your your mound of Chinese desserts, like what? The- does she know about loneliness? <laughs> okay, all right. Who's to know what Andrea Rosen knows about loneliness? First of all, but um, okay, but yeah. The, there are some quotes where she's like, you know, this brings us together in like a physical way, and you know, I, I, there's also this idea of like at the beginning, you know, COVID being. <laughs> Are you gonna be okay? <laughs> Mental breakdown. <laughs> yeah, please go ahead. <laughs> we'll leave this part. <laughs> well, I just pull my shit together. Maybe that's the thing, is that it's so bad that um Rahel talks about in her interview about feeling almost like a sense of embarrassment that like she should be lauded for pointing it out, you know? Like yeah somebody's taking a big shit over there and everybody's like oh my god somebody's taking a big shit over there the hell is the first person to notice it like it's very like I can see I can see her feeling of sort of dismay yes uh the sort of too easy reception of this is like thank god somebody said something and you know Rahel's point as we'll be made clear in the reading is no this has been endemic um to the art world, not uniquely, but especially for 30 plus years. There's some quotes in there from Roberta Smith um, that yeah. are just jaw dropping and, and they're not even <clears throat> uh, historic, you know, but because it's, <laughs> it's an ongoing trend for Roberta. But anyway, we, I don't mean to take down the entire New York art world in this introduction. I'm just, <laughs> we should leave it to the And parents. another thing. <laughs> Um, because yeah, maybe this is too shorthanded. Um, there is a link here to also the, you know, the context of it being 2020, the summer of that year 
and the racial um, reckoning, the protests, also the anti-Asian violence that was spiking. Yeah. There, there are some really important threads that Rahel points out here that kind of land her at very obvious um, dismay um, mm-hmm. around, yeah, yeah. The, the the needle of racism and in, in the art world in particularly just in, in particular just not moving and I guess that's why I briefly lost my mind at reading that quote about <laughs> mounds of Chinese desserts you know so <laughs> let's let's dig in here shall we but mm, yeah. where should we how do we wrap this up Lauren what do you think yeah I think as you've sort of really nicely given a précis to, um, one of the things I really appreciate about Rahel's writing and, and in this piece in particular is something that she talks about when she says that she's less interested in art than she is in everything that surrounds the work. And I yeah. have a very similar feeling. So I'm always really, I'm always really interested in a piece that's telling me about everything that's going around uh, like going on around the work rather than you know purely a description of the work absolutely Um, the mechanisms the you know the the bad actors the scaffolding mm -hmm, and the mm -hmm. pr machine as is especially true of this piece um as Mm -hmm. we just discovered (laughs) trying to find original work online is impossible and so, yeah, this is, there's so much here. And I think also just for the emerging or practicing writers who are listening, Rahel yeah. is one of the great talkers of shop talk around criticism and how to, <laughs> how to find your way into the hearts and homes of editors or pitch or not pitch as the case may be and just tweet or, you know, like work through a piece from T to B. She's just, she's full of good advice and also I think some very relatable malaise as well around like the kind mm-hmm. of like locked corner of, of art writing and um, the intransigence of being in that profession almost too deeply. Um, I think she's coming to a point as a prolific and completely capable and sometimes extremely winning critic herself who just has a byline in every desirable place many times over. I think she's sort of wondering at like 33, is this the top of my practice? And mm-hmm. if so, like, do I leave it now? <laughs> because mm-hmm. you know, there isn't much to sustain you once you are even at that desirable um, peak. So I think I've heard her, I don't think she gets into it in this discussion so much, but I have heard her talk about, you know, the wall that she feels she's hitting sometimes in her career. And, how, you know, is there mentorship you can reach for as like a quote unquote mid-career art writer, um, Mm -hmm. those are really good questions and questions that I feel myself sort of also um, arriving at. So I I think it's a useful conversation for writers. It really is. Yeah. Yeah, I agree completely. She's spoken also to our um, Emerging Critics Residency now twice, and it's it's really nice to be able to to sort of share Rahel's insight um, outside of that, like, more private space. Yes. Yeah. So shall we continue on to the interview? Let us. This is Rahel Ama reading from Depleting Felix Gonzalez Torres that was published by Momus July 6th, 2020. In recent weeks, piles of fortune cookies materialized around the world in art spaces, restaurants, and private homes in Dubai, Beijing, Montevideo, and across the global north. In Shanghai's Hongqiaochu, airport, filling up a baby grand in Knoxville, a museum locker in Dusseldorf, 
a broken-down suburban park in Niwot, Colorado, in a forest glade in Sarvisalo, Finland. The wrappers were variously clear or foiled in red, gold, silver, or blue. In the West Village, Tel Aviv, and Stinson Beach, California, the cookies were unwrapped and left to go stale. The piles were part of a mammoth exhibition of Felix Gonzalez Torres's 1990 work entitled Fortune Cookie Corner, curated by Andrea Rosen, who co-represents his estate with David Zwerner. Invitations were sent out to a thousand dealers, critics, collectors, friends of the artists, and fans sourced from Instagram in a move taken right out of the influencer marketing playbook. These participants were asked to source between 240 and 1,000 cookies, display them in a place of their choosing, and document them for the gram. Organizers noted that sourcing may be difficult due to the pandemic and to allow for extra shipping time. No mention was made of the Amazon, Instacart, and other worker strikes, or the dubious dynamic of online shopping for non-essential goods at a time when medical professionals were falling sick for want of basic PPE. Each pile was refreshed once over the duration of the exhibition, a collective respawning on June 14th. Displaying a seeming lack of understanding as to how the internet works, participants were encouraged to use the official emojied hashtag, hashtag FGT with a fortune cookie emoji, exhibition to indicate their status and distinguished their official piles from any copycats. The cookies are free for the public to take, assuming it has access, though most exist in private homes and exclusive social clubs like Hong Kong's Soho House. The organizers, mega gallerists Werner and Rosen, see it as an opportunity for people to physically encounter work at a time when most art is online. The website cycles in vague bromides about spatial boundaries and chance hope, the unknown. Like many of Gonzalez Torres's piles of sweets or paper, the work conjures a body through accumulation and depletion, and the immortality of regeneration. The parallels between COVID-19 and the still ongoing AIDS pandemic, fears of contagion, the decimation and disposability of some lives, systemic callousness writ large, are all the more poignant for being mostly unspoken. The ongoing epidemic of police murders remind us that racism in the US is an underlying condition in and of itself. It's worth noting that one Los Angeles manifestation was heaped in front of a homemade Black Lives Matter banner. But of all the Felix Gonzalez Torres candy joints in the world, did they really have to choose this one? At a time when the coronavirus was being gleefully dubbed the Wuhan virus and the Chinese virus by no less than the President of the United States, it's hard not to see the choice of fortune cookies as winkingly xenophobic. One suspects that the same people posting black squares and hashtag BLM statements would not register the casual racism of exhibitions like Show Maine at the 2017 Spring Break Art Fair whose framing trafficked in Chinese takeout stereotypes. In Omar Fass, Chinatown LARP, meanwhile, the artists bizarrely transformed the slick James Cohen gallery space into a worn-down Chinatown waiting room to frame two video pieces. Both exhibitions deploy Chinese stereotypes as set dressing, 
to frame entirely unrelated artworks in a kind of spatial yellow face. In a similar manner, the fortune cookie piles suggest the late Victorian fashion of Turkish corners, which featured broadly orientalized furniture, wallpaper, rugs, tasseled cushions, and tchotchkes. These exotic accoutrements were relegated to a specific corner, nook, or small room of a house, almost for fear of infection. More broadly, we can understand the exhibition as an extension of overwhelmingly white, moneyed arts professionals and their tendency to trivialize black and indigenous death by trying to relate it to the art world, as if that somehow makes it more legible, as if don't murder black people isn't enough. It's worth remembering, too, that while the pandemic might be an extended staycation for some, it signals a period of extended economic attrition and disproportionate ca casualties for other overwhelmingly white po populations. Take critic Blake Gopnik, who recently published a Warhol biography, notably excoriated by Gary and Indiana in Harper's. Like all authors whose publication date coincided with the global pandemic, he was presumably denied a publicity tour Instead, in a now-deleted tweet, he compared the 8 minutes and 46 seconds that it took for a police officer to murder George Floyd to how, quote, endless it feels to sit through one of Warhol's screen tests. Saying that the art world is racist is like saying that the sky is blue, that water is wet. It reflects the society that both built and maintains it, settler colonialists, classes, racists, and above all, anti-Black. Dana Schutz, Joe Scanlon, the Guggenheim, the generalized privileging of property over people are just some recent examples. This week, I revisited Adrian Piper's 1990 essay, The Triple Negation of Colored Woman Artists, and was hashtag not surprised to encounter these two snippets that speak to the way that white supremacy and its attendant racialized hubri plays out within art criticism. Quote, Item 1983. Rosalind Krauss explains to her fellow symposiasts at the NEA Art Criticism Symposium that she doubts there is any unrecognized African or American art of quality because if it doesn't bring herself to her attention, it probably doesn't exist. Second quote. Item 1989. Roberta Smith explains to film interviewer Terry McCoy that the real problem with the art of African-Americans is that it just isn't any good, that it would be in mainstream galleries if it were, that she's been up to the studio museum a couple of times and hasn't seen anything worthwhile, that it's all too derivative, and so on. That was then. The world changes, and the art world doesn't really, though goes occasionally perforated by the crawl and refrain of open letters and the ancient wine proverb that we must do better. Regarding early responses to the Whitney Biennial, ever a survey of anti-blackness in American art, critic Antoine Sargent tweeted, the consistent voices at the Times and everywhere else are entirely white. It is 2019 and we are in the middle of a renaissance in black artistic production. And you are telling me that the best people to evaluate that are the same ones who basically ignored black artists for decades, end quote. That December, Roberta Smith, now 
co-chief art critic at the New York Times, would discover black artists and declare that, uh, headline quote, uh, black art has this moment finally in a roundly criticized article whose title was later changed to a sea change in the art world made by black creators. That's 30 years later for everyone keeping count. Liberalism comes at you fast. Anti-Asian sentiment plays out in subtler forms that are no less pervasive. A common thread is the way that anyone who looks remotely East Asian is flattened into the monolithic umbrella of Asianness. Also relevant here are recent discussions around capitalizing black or white. Just before everything shut down, a New York dealer disinvited a Vietnamese curator from working at her fair booth because, quote, Asians are being seen as carriers of the virus, end quote. Art workers are responding to a spreadsheet documenting such incidents, We Are Not COVID, which was started by artist Kenneth Tam, has resulted in the collective Stop Discrimination. There's a different kind of flattening at play in reducing a work so inextricably linked with embodiment and loss to a PR exercise masquerading as temporary home decor. The Fortune Cookie exhibition celebrates the launch of the Felix Gonzalez Torres Foundation's new website in a move reminiscent of the way that property developers might hire performers or street artists to activate space. Let's not forget that we are talking about literal deaths here, whether from COVID-19, AIDS, or white supremacy. The cookies may be replenished. Lives cannot. There's so much going on in that piece. And uh, just to start, I wonder how you pitch a piece like that. Um, I know there's a bit of a story here in terms of where that piece was first intended to go. So maybe you can kind of walk us through sort of the construction of the pitch and and that conversation you were having with a different publisher to begin. Yes, so this is actually not a piece um, that I pitched at all uh, initially, but rather one that um, an editor uh, which was Margaret Carrigan, who used to be at the art, art newspaper, approached me with and kind of the general, really had the general frame of the idea, like, look at what is happening. Isn't this strange that I choose this particular fortune cookie work at this particular time? Um, and it's the kind of thing, um, I, I mean, I love getting things kind of maybe, a kind of nudge like this from editors, perhaps, because it's the kind of thing that I would have seen kind of rolled my eyes at maybe made a tweet about or an Instagram story about and never thought about again. Um, so that kind of thing was great. Um, and what happened with that is, I guess uh, I filed a draft and they said it ended up being too similar or covered similar ground to a uh, review, I guess, by Carolina Miranda, I think at the, at the LA Times, which had just been published um I think around the time or before I'd filed, just before I'd filed. So uh, for whatever reason, they decided not to run it um, and offered me a kill fee, which was nice. Um, and at that point, I think, I mean, you probably saw the first draft, I think. So I asked you if you were interested in publishing it, though it changed, I think, quite a lot from that initial draft um, to what it ended up being published as. Mm. In terms of, I'm just curious, did you see the piece that Carolina Miranda published? And did you, did you ever kind of sort of sweep up that, that reasoning from the art newspaper and see if it checked out? You know, I, I, I did see it. I mean, I saw it afterwards. I don't th- I do try not to read things before because there's always a worry that mm-hmm. it will kind of um, 
sink in. So that's not always, you know, I think it depends. Like if you're doing a profile of someone who is maybe not very well known or that you're approached to do, that's different. But um, yeah, I don't, I don't know how close it was, uh, mm. except I'm trying to, I should have actually reread that uh, Carolina's piece before, but I did read it when they said that and I didn't think it was super close, but um, mm-hmm. I didn't mm-hmm. know. Well, how often does that happen in your experience? I know, you know, you're such a prolific writer that there must be a certain margin um, whereby something gets killed or shuffled off um, mm-hmm. a particular platform. But yeah, I wonder how, how do you normally, how do you typically navigate those kinds of conversations with editors? Um, you know, most of the time it doesn't. I mean, I think in the case where I'm offered a fairly generous, I think it was like 50% or something kill fee I think everyone feels happy I think the editor fought for it to still be published but for whatever reason it wasn't Mm -hmm. um and usually when it's happened it's actually happened less than than you would think probably but usually when it's happened it's been through I don't want to say editorial disorganization perhaps like something sometimes it's happened that the editor has just forgotten about it or it's being shuffled off in some way, which is, this happened a lot more when I was younger, which might have been just a way to kill a piece. I don't know. I think I would approach it differently at the time. I was like, oh, well, I spent time on that. Okay. Um, and very often that happened with like reviews, things that aren't, things that have a shelf life really once the show yeah. is over or it's a couple of, you know, weeks or months after that. Um, in the same way, sometimes I've just not been able to complete something Um if no one follows up, it kind of just filters out, I guess, mm-hmm. or fades into the distance. And I think that probably happens with like one or two pieces a year, like not very, not very much compared to, I guess, the amount that I'm writing now and was before mm-hmm. the pandemic, even during the mm-hmm. pandemic, actually, I was writing about the same almost just for much lower, for much lower pay. Right. So your batting mm-hmm. average stays high. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. Maybe talk to us a bit about pitching. I can imagine at this stage that more often than not, you are being sort of approached and commissioned, which must take a lot of um, the kind of front loading of critical thinking away from the writing must be, it must be sort of an ideal spot to find yourself in over time. Um, Yeah. Can you talk to us a bit? Because given how much you write, um, I just continue to be amazed that it isn't sort of a pitch machine that you're spinning. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think it's precisely because I really almost never don't pitch unless it's for a new publication. Um, And often I, I really find, and this is a silly thing perhaps to say, because pitching is unavoidable, especially in kind of the early stages of your career. But I find that it it's it's functionally a waste of time for me, the amount of time that I put into it as opposed to just not doing it. Um, <laughs> you know, so I, re- I really only pitch when it's entirely, entirely new. And I don't think I know how to pitch very well, to be honest. Mm. Um, but mostly, I mean, the extent of my pitching is honestly, how about this thing with Link to the Show? Mm-hmm. Um at least for things like reviews and probably a line or two. You know, the mm-hmm. thing I'd say about pitching, I think this took me took me years to understand, is very often it's, at least in art writing, it feels like, and this may be more weighted towards US, though a little bit UK and Europe, it's 
not it's very often first and foremost about the writer you know um whether they want something from the writer or not and that's nice because it means sometimes it's like what did you like that's those are emails i would get what did you like this month okay let's go with that you know that's kind of the first thing and then the check is like have we published the second thing is it's very rarely about the artist or the show in the sense that it's like have we published anything about this gallery in the last year or two years have we done a major feature on this artist before you know those mm-hmm. are other things and the third thing is like timing you know do they have a really for a profile do they have a museum show or a biennial participation or something that's fairly large like there are all of these you know you don't really unless it's like art reporting which I don't do a lot of that has news hooks very often, but everything else has exhibition hooks, you know. Um, mm-hmm. This is a thing I really didn't understand, actually. I mean, I understood on a big level until um, interviewing a couple of editors um, for a thing that I wrote for Study Hall early in the pandemic, um, just about how difficult it was, especially for art writers, you know, because with no exhibitions, there were no ads. So freelance budgets were slashed, magazines weren't publishing, and um, an editor at Art Forum, uh, Lloyd Wise, said basically something about, I wish I could find his words, but about the exhibition, you know, being the hook, being the news hook. And it's some, that just kind of clicked into place something that I already knew, you know, this is really, and it's similar, this thing that I keep uh, mentioning again and again, something that you said at maybe the first or last year's um, Emerging Critics Residency about especially, you know, exhibitions being... Uh, something that every or reviews being something that everyone resents writing, but that are the transaction that keeps the art mm. magazines going. Um, mm. Along All of which is to say very often my pitching is just this one line or somebody approaches me with, um, I'm lucky to be in a position where people approach me with more things or enough things that would keep me busy. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not in a place where I understand how to say no. That's very difficult for me. Mm-hmm. Even, I think, to get out of a scarcity, sink or swim mindset of years ago, and I think maybe even making progress with that, being like, this is enough, this is how much I can reasonably do. I think the pandemic just threw that all kind of into disarray again. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't pitch, and I think I don't actually know how to pitch properly in the way that you would pitch. Um, when I try to pitch kind of out different things, you know, I want to write a piece about let's say climate change in the UAE. And that's something I've been trying to do more of just since moving to Dubai now, um, which is supposed to be a temporary kind of pit stop, which is looking like it might be, I don't know, another year longer. Um, Mm. It's hard to tell. I've been trying to pitch other stories and also realizing I just don't know how to do that um, in the way that someone would pitch like a feature outside of the art interesting well Mm -hmm. because you're an editor of pitches and so Mm -hmm. you see but I know I know that doesn't necessarily mean you can graft you know one-to-one um you know knowing what works in a pitch doesn't mean being able to write um a working pitch but but nevertheless you're quite up close with its function have you because I'm I'm conscious that we do have emerging writers listening and I wonder if you have any recommendations for you know what often we get wrong in pitching or when we receive them what we're often seeing as uh as lacking I mean the thing that one editor told me to a pitch which has stuck with me which is one of those lines is and this applies less I think to art writing but for 
kind of journalist writing is that this is a topic, not a story. So, yes. you know, think about yeah. things like developments, who are the characters, um, how does how is it going to move and how is it going how is a reader going to move around the story? Um, I don't think that always applies in the same way to um, to art pitches. And for that, I think, uh, like I said this to you in email, Sky, I'm quite swayed by good writing more than mm-hmm. I should be. And by mm-hmm. good writing, I think I'm swayed by stylish writing, which is mm-hmm. not always necessarily good. And I think it's a mm-hmm. problem I have in my own writing. If it doesn't sound too obnoxious to say, I can write beautiful things which don't always have substance in them but they look nice, you know, mm-hmm. and I think that goes a long way. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's especially when you're pushed for time. Like, I feel like I'm not always, especially at this kind of um, pace of output, I'm not writing things with the rigor that I would like to be, but mm-hmm. you know, they look nice. Um, and I think that is something that I'm personally swayed by, which is not mm-hmm. always good. You know, um, mm-hmm. the biggest thing I think I always think of, especially for somewhere like moments is just what are the stakes, you know, why this why now who's the audience like and just why publish this you know just why mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um which is often a question I find this sometimes the pictures being like okay but why you know yeah could this have been published in 1960 in 1990 you know and read exactly the same very often it could you know yeah yeah and that might be no, a bias so of the kind of art that I'm interested in or the kind of art writing I would like to read but you know art writing is like a it's it's time bound, right? It's a capture. It's like a, it's really is documentation, and I think if something is not of its time and its place, you know, I do very much believe that a show changes in every iteration. You know, the same work is different in every place that mm-hmm. it is, not mm-hmm. just because of the space, because of the atmospheric conditions, because mm-hmm. of whatever else. You know, the weather that day affects how you mm-hmm. read a show. I think, um, and the writing should capture the specificity mm-hmm. of that. You know, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, to that point, um, I, I wanted to get into the construction of this piece mm-hmm. and its delivery um, of, well, any number of sort of uh, triaged points. But the the first paragraph all by itself carries so much data with it um, without sacrificing voice or style. I think that's very hard, hard to arrive, that balance. Um, but I wonder how big a believer you are in putting in as much um, information above the fold in that first graph, sort of as we would imagine journalists are prior- prioritizing over that kind of tonal lure or like the, the mood that you're you're setting up or your own authority that you might be setting up, um, however performatively. Like, how do you balance those concerns in terms of eking out a basically a lead? You know, I don't think... I want to say I don't think about it, but I do because I really feel that the first line is the most important line and the second yeah. most important line is the last line and yeah. everything in between may as well be filler. I mean, ideally not, but I really think like it takes me hours to write the first line and then everything kind of gets from there. Um, and it's interesting you'd say that because I think any information that comes across is really accidental probably mm. or more, I really always... Um, I really always do think about the mood and like kind of plummeting in. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, a thing, so when I was, I don't know how old I was, at some point as a teenager, probably I watched, um, you know, the film Almost Famous. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember like what was presented as the example of this young kid doing great writing 
was him really starting in medias res, like he's with the band, they're falling out of the sky in an airplane, just kind of very immediate, very in there, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And this Rolling Stone editor is like, wow, this is wild, you know. And I think this really always stuck with me. And I think it's, mm-hmm. it can be a trope. It's a trope that I think I lean on maybe too often, but just really starting mm-hmm. in the middle of the action. A, a critic recently was uh, in, well, now they're a curator, but um, mm-hmm. they got in touch with me. We hadn't been in touch in a few years and um, they were reminding me or remembering to me this moment that we had shared in a parking lot outside of an art opening. They were remembering to me in an email that I had essentially delivered advice that I no longer hewed to, <laughs> but that apparently was very informative for them. They've held on to it. But um, it was back probably when I was um, the editor of the Canadian edition of Blue N Art Info. And because uh-huh. there was such a culture sort of top down through Blue End that um, we should be churning things out and really sort of mm-hmm. applying ourselves to this fairly cynical logic that readers had no brains online and no <laughs> sort of um, loyalty to what they were even reading. There was just this sort of um, very sort of aggressive um, directive from that editorial mm-hmm platform to grab as much attention as you could in that first paragraph and to move as much data into that paragraph as possible for fear that you lose your reader. And I guess I was dispensing with that as though it was good advice. I, I absolutely don't think that's important anymore. <laughs> and often uh-huh. it's that's the kind of art writing that really repels me is, you know, glutting you or bricking you up with facts before moving into often taking all the way till the final paragraph to move into anything that could um, be called style or um, mm-hmm. critical reading. So <laughs> anyway, I just find that interesting. And I wonder if it isn't um, largely, as I say, kind of hooked up with our expectations of readers and how that expectation uh-huh. has shifted, especially in the online publishing space in the last five or six years. What's been your experience with that? And and in terms of working with editors at all these various platforms that you do, like, is there a kind of urgency behind keep the reader, don't let the reader drop? You know, I think literally never. And maybe mm. this is me. <laughs> I think maybe this is me just not registering Mm. something that the editors feel or is an imperative otherwise. But um, Mm. I think no. And I think it's because, you know, and maybe this is a little bit different if you're, I very rarely do, again, I keep saying I rarely do it, like stuff for art newspaper or art news, you know, reporting Mm. stuff. And that might be different, but really one, nobody reads art writing in the grander scheme of things, you know, if you have your the audience that you have are going to read it anyway or going to have the publication anyway, you know, I don't think people are necessarily would be in the business of trying to get hook readers, you know, in that way through the writing as opposed to being in the same sphere, you know, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. I mean, mm-hmm. I've been looking at social media recently. I notice a lot of people are trying to hook readers through different forms of media, through IGTV stuff through Instagram very often through podcasts but um I don't think that the writing necessarily has changed in the same way or has changed Mm -hmm. at least in the last I don't know how long I've been doing this not very long relatively five six years seven Mm -hmm. years six years Mm -hmm. um well this was a question I wanted to get into later but it feels appropriate to move mm -hmm. it up actually is um is around that trajectory that you forged and how you understand yourself to be getting better 
if you do. I do, for sure, as a reader of yours, an editor of yours. But, um, you know, it's just been very exciting to work with you over the span of a few years and just watch that Um at your skill. And I, I wonder how you're experiencing it at the inside of that practice and what some of the mm-hmm. lessons maybe that you're taking for yourself from this period of, of really rocketing through so much writing. Well, well first, thank you. Um, I don't know if I'm getting better. I think I'm getting more. The way I think about it is like, you know, so I'm at my parents right now in Dubai and they have all of this very carved furniture and I feel like I'm able to produce writing maybe that's more chiseled in a certain way mm. or maybe more elegant. Um, I think there's probably a loss in that too. I think, I mean, one base thing of getting better is just exposure and knowledge maybe and and just seeing a lot of art. You know, I think I always was quite insecure about not having, actually, I wouldn't say, in, I wouldn't say insecure, but I think was aware that I just didn't know anything about art. I kind of fell into it like a lot of people do, you know. I didn't study art history. Um, Mm. I think, as I've said, maybe elsewhere or maybe to you, I actually took up art writing because I thought it was a world, it looked like a world with a lot of money in it. I mean, I was working at a gallery at the time and I was like, this is great, you know, art writing is going to sustain me while I do other kinds of writing that I'm more interested in. And then my interests changed over time. I liked what you were saying about um, your writing becoming more chiseled, maybe, mm-hmm. if you can elaborate more on that. I mean, I feel like this piece that we've just heard is actually a really great example of that. Maybe by way, if this is too daunting in, in, in the compliment that's baked into the question, I wonder if we can talk about sort of how you constructed this piece. If you have a memory of ordering in or filing in these you know, the tips of um, the pointy edges of wedges, you know, mm-hmm. um, throughout so that you can sort of expand or, or, or flow out from something that could look like a data point to a, a sort of searing note of criticism. There's so much at work in this piece. I guess I just wonder if you can take us through its, its construction. I really feel, uh, I feel like I, I don't know, like maybe I don't think about anything. You know, I don't think I very much actively think about construction in that way. As a sidebar, like one thing I've been interested in, for example, is organizing shows. When I put together proposals, I feel like I'm using artists or artworks as furniture, you know, for a text, as instrumentalized as a text. Um, And I think there's a danger of doing that in the same kind of essay. You know, here I'm going to Mm. use these books that happen to be released in proximity to talk about this broader idea um but I think that is a way that I do tend to think about an essay that kind of doesn't expand but um unfurled like I think a a nice way for an essay to be is like those flower teas you know which might not be super tasty but you know the kinds that they kind of you put them in hot water and then they Mm -hmm. bloom Mm -hmm. um I guess you have little sponge toys and stuff a lot of things that expand with water but I yeah I think that's a nice way for an essay to go. Um, so mm-hmm. I think I had a sense that I would start with with this um, particular phenomenon or piece, the, the Excondales Taurus one, and then just look at other things that are happening at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a funny, yeah, it was a funny time. I don't like writing pieces like this, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I, th- I think the reason I don't like writing pieces like this is their reception. You know, I think the other, another piece I did for Momus, which was about um, mm-hmm. Hito and her, her video about guns, you know, I think people are very quick to clap at things like this mm-hmm. that feel a little rough to me. Like this feels like quite an unpolished piece actually to me mm-hmm. in a way. And I think it's maybe my sense of polishing is polishing the uh, voice or affective layer out of it or having it in a more controlled way. Um, mm. Having like a squeezy tube instead of like a beaker mm. in a way. Um, and maybe mm. that's what I mean about being more chiseled over time and writing. I don't know if it necessarily gets has gotten better so much has shifted. I think I was probably a lot more expressive when I first started mm. to um write about really about anything yeah I mean that leads to a couple things I wanted to touch on actually Mm -hmm. um you use for instance the artwork at the center of this piece sort of as a diving Mm -hmm. board um and so you don't circle the work itself too much beyond its utilization by the art world Mm -hmm. um by these mega gallerists etc so I I wonder if what consideration you gave that it did the work seem so well-known or is Felix Gonzalez Torres now in that space generally where just a reference will do or was it that you didn't want to heap too much focus on the work which in fact has been dummied about um Mm -hmm. you know and and used for I think nefarious ends in this case so to talk about the work almost be besides the point yeah I mean I think I don't know if this work is super well known in the same way but I think the typology of work mm. is quite well known. Um, and I think I do have a tendency to find, this is a terrible thing to say as someone who writes about art, to find the work the least interesting part of the whole thing mm-hmm. very often, or at least in terms of what I'm interested in. Everything that surrounds work is more interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Um, the various infrastructures and scaffolding that surround it are, I think, like I'm, I think really it's like to use one of these cliches, like I'm really interested in how the sausage gets made, you know, and not the filling. Mm-hmm. That's some mm-hmm. kind of mix. I don't actually know how sausages get made, but, you know, <laughs> um, you know, I think it's not like, I mean, it's not so much the work so much as like this work, this particular work now where dispersed in this way, you know, in the, I mean, the same way that the works are, are works about dispersion or taking mm-hmm. and and um, spreading or moving around in different ways. Uh, For sure. I mean, I think I would I would venture that that's true of most of the most successful art writing, though, is to hook into something beyond the work. You know, a catalog essay by comparison would just go all the deeper into mm-hmm. its art citation and and I think good criticism does very much the opposite or as you say you know looks out the window mm-hmm. from its own exhibition um certainly that's how we you know at moments are trying to think about things as they come through the pitch transom is you know what can this hang on to that's bigger than itself um that will help it well first of all be evergreen for a publication that moves a little bit slower to respond but mm-hmm but also to help give it a larger audience potentially than those, you know, 100 people. 
um, mm -hmm. that typically probably uh, are touched by any given review. Mm -hmm. Even 100 um, seems generous. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe very successful artist yeah. in that case. <laughs> I mean, because by the end of this piece, you're literally talking about literal death, white supremacy. Mm -hmm. um, and you're writing this in the midst of that summer, that heady summer that mm -hmm. we can all recall for ourselves. You also don't foreground your own subjecthood too much while maintaining a clipped authority through the piece. So I guess that brings me to the eye of it all, you know, uh -huh. how, how much of a choice or not it is for you to be, to be foregrounding that first person. In, mm -hmm. in writing like this? You know, I love to drop the I in, not necessarily at the beginning, but just kind of casual speech, mm -hmm. um, almost as a kind of pivot or or like, you know, someone turning to look at the camera and then kind of, kind of joying. Like, I think there's a kind of joviality about mm -hmm. it, about just kind of not, not showing up as I, this is filtered through me, mm -hmm. but just by the way I'm here. Uh, happen to be here. How's it going, everyone? You know, almost as a kind of, it feels like a, I mean, I hate stand up, but it feels like a kind of pre show or preset banter kind of thing, mm, but mm. dropped in the middle. Um, mm. And that's something I think I like to do. I don't think it happens at all here. Um, but I do, I mean, I think that's really the only truth of it, right? Like there is, there is an I, and to pretend otherwise is like, mm is ridiculous. Um, so I think it, it didn't happen here actually, but I think I do like to kind of really wander on screen as it were. Oh, I like, I like that. That's really the kind of gate that I feel like, you know, someone kind of like an old timey, like, yeah, just. <laughs> it's still here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like that idea mm -hmm. a lot. Wandering on screen. I mean, that suggests such a skill level all by itself, you know, to sort of make that choice coyly um, because mm -hmm. it's just one of many options in front of you. But, um, and how about humor? How hard or easy is it for you to be funny in, in your art writing, your criticism? How often is it a choice? I guess is what I'm wondering. You know, the only time that I think I've actually ever very actively thought about it is a piece that I did for Bedoon a couple of years ago on the new, at the time, new Louvre. It wasn't even new then, on the uh, Louvre Museum. And I think that was in large part because of working with a particular editor who mm. wanted it to be funny. Um, I think it's, I think humor is hard. Like, I think that's what I enjoy reading. But I think it can come across as quite fatalist or maybe it's just my sense of humor it can come across as quite fatalistic or sard sardonic and mm. I think it can come across as callous mm. when not in person I think I think it's less difficult or I think my biggest worry is to punch down is not to punch down mm -hmm. uh, in any situation and I think humor is I find that difficult to I, I mean I, I'm saying I here, but really, like, I think I just read really, this sounds maybe sounds silly, but I really don't think about things. I mean, I must at at some level, yeah. but I don't, you know, very actively think about things uh, when I write. Yeah. Um, sometimes I have a too cute, too precious line, which probably, depending on the publication, I will leave it in 
for the editor to decide or, you know, I mean, the, the, the most humor I would have is like wordplay or something mm-hmm. like that. And that depends on the publication more, whether it gets left in or not. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think, but I think that's something to be careful about just if it's punching or even taking a swing, which direction that it's going in. And I think humor is very difficult in that sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think there are moments in in this piece, for instance, and also in um, the Hito Steirl piece that you were referencing a moment ago. Talk a bit more about that for us, if you would. Like, what is the experience of watching something land? And how much, if any, fear is running through you in those kind of adrenaline-fueled hours or days after you publish a piece as, as unabashedly critical as this one? Oh, I mean, no fear, which is probably something that I'm realizing having come back here, which is, this is a very relatively small scene, very uh, social. I've really never thought about or being, or being afraid about in, in a way that maybe it would have been helpful to have been at or been more thoughtful before opening my mouth. This is mostly also me on Twitter, yeah. um, which I haven't used as much recently just because it feels, everything feels kind of overwhelming. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't think, what makes me uncomfortable is I feel like there's, and this is something that happens in general, is kind of accolades or metaphorical backpats for really saying the very loud part out loud Mm. like none of this is new like you know the response is like I'm so glad that somebody said this but like Mm. really you know like it's nothing I'm not saying anything new at all or unusual I think it's just people like drama in a way and this is not Mm. drama but I think just even veering from absolute neutrality is uh is seen as is dramatic i don't know like mm-hmm. the responses to these particular this piece and the other piece make me uncomfortable i think in the last piece it's a lot of people are maybe made uncomfortable by a certain dynamic in maybe hito cheryl's work and in mm-hmm. research art quote unquote in general um mm-hmm. and that piece frustrated me for a different reason it's just because i couldn't get at you know i think it was a start but i couldn't get at what i wanted to say exactly like research mm-hmm. art still, I feel like, you know, writing can be a kind of, not itch scratching, but like, I don't know, like kind of like lactic acid expelling or something. Uh, mm-hmm. Like research art still bothers me immensely. And I haven't, and I wasn't able to write it out then. And I still haven't been able to since. Mm-hmm. So I think that's something that frustrates me still. Um, yeah, I don't know how to articulate exactly, but I just... I'm uncomfortable with the responses to a particular kind of subject. If you yourself feel like you could have gone further with it, there's almost a frustration. Like it literally says water is wet. And then people are like, wow, water is wet, (laughs) you know? And I understand people are, are happy to see something like this or even an iteration of the same. I don't know, but it's, yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't like it. Or maybe I don't want people to, you know, like I think maybe there's, I think it would there would be a lot more pressure in doing the kind of writing, apologies to art writing that people read, you mm-hmm. know. And maybe that's just the discomfort for me, like, oh no, people are reading this, the thing that I say that no one reads mm-hmm. or that I complain that no one reads, you know. <laughs> that, 
could also be the case. Yeah. Yeah. This is, I understand there's like a behavioral mm-hmm. economics that you have to <laughs> decode in your own self mm-hmm. around um, bringing attention for that, which I guess we're asking for attention from. How, how does Twitter function for you? I, so if you're not on it so much right now, but at least in the recent past, vis-a-vis art criticism anyway, how, mm-hmm. how much of a seeding ground is it for what can come next in terms of developing ideas and um, and or sort of s- s- hooking the interest of uh, editors without having to <laughs> work up a sweat? I think, I mean, I don't really even do this anymore. I do check Twitter every day primarily because because of some of some DM groups that I'm in, um, one of which is kind of like an art people one, which is how I think I find out about a lot of stuff. Mm. Um, I should clean up my timeline at some point, but it feels, again, overwhelming. So I don't really actually look Mm. at Twitter very much except for the algorithm stacks, like here are the wildly funny things that everybody (laughs) around you is reading. (laughs) You know, that's the kind of stuff that shows up on on my Twitter. Um, In the past, when I was doing any pitching at all, it would be, I would use it as what I thought of as kind of lazy pitching to kind of gauge an idea. Who mm-hmm. is interested in this? Um, sometimes I think something is mildly interesting, you know, but don't want, again, don't want to put in, frankly, the effort to pitching or don't have the, I mean, it's don't want to put in the effort is really like, is the time, you know, it's kind of like, a, is anyone is inter- is anyone interested in this thing? Please commission me. And very occasionally, mm-hmm. Uh, I don't do that that often. It's something when I used to do it, sometimes people would be interested because editors do follow writers. I follow writers on Twitter for the same reason, though I mm-hmm. don't look at Twitter anymore. But I, when I was on it, I did. And part of that also actually is time zones. It's just mm-hmm. mostly U.S. people. It's overwhelmingly mm-hmm. U.S. politics and news and things. Um, and when I look at Twitter during the day, I get like late night Twitter, mm-hmm. uh, which is its own thing. But... I think it's also, yeah, the biggest thing is time zones and just what is on the feed from leaving the U.S., mm-hmm. I think. I mean, this might be, this risks um, being kind of Pollyanna-ish, but do you, so I, and, and maybe it's just a leading question, that's the problem of it, but <laughs> do you see a democratization of criticism or an expectation maybe is a better word of harder hitting criticism, sort of emerging in art writing. Well, maybe I'll just ask that. And and if so, can you link it back to the function of social media to be more economical and sharper um, in, in our opining? Hmm. I don't know, actually. I would want to think so. Um, yeah. But I don't think there's a really, I don't think there is a real change mm-hmm. in who, I think this will change in a few years, within five years. I don't think there is a real change in who is getting published mm-hmm. right now. I think there is a change in who's getting shown and who is maybe organizing mm-hmm. those shows. But I don't think that it has changed, that has trickled to mm-hmm. publishing, you know, like that's for that reason, I think the Indigenous specific um, residency um art writing residency that Momus is doing is great because I, I really don't think that's something that's happened. It's the same people mm. as far mm-hmm. as I can see who are writing about art mm. in kind of the same modes. I think what I'm very wary of is a kind of POC claiming of relatively POC claiming of BIPOCness. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, 
there are, for example, let's say a lot more black artists showing, it feels like in the US um, and you have maybe POC artists of different and sometimes more privileged backgrounds kind of writing about them, not that they shouldn't, but mm. as a kind of representation, represent, representer of of BIPOCness in general, which I think mm-hmm. are different things. Um, mm-hmm. I know I feel like that gets into a sticky place because I don't necessarily feel that, but I think I'm just wary, wary of everything. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that something that you feel like you have to keep your hand on the tiller around in your own practice? I mean, I say no to things when I feel that it's uh, very... It's absolute tokenization, I think, but it's maybe not so actively, but it's something that I feel like if it makes me uncomfortable and I register, I've registered making me uncomfortable at times over an extended period of time. Then it's, I mean, it's, 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 it's actually something I would say that was very much the case in the US and being in a different context now, it's, I mean, it's just a completely different context with not much, not very many art writers um, functionally me and another person in, really in this country and so a lot of younger people. Um, so it's just a completely different scene, I think, yeah. and different yeah. ecology. Um, maybe this is uh, one of the last questions I'll put to you before some rapid fire mm-hmm. general writing questions. But if you had your choice around how you would be spending the next couple of years in terms of art writing, what you would want to commit to, the scope or scale um, or maybe subject of what you would be most eager to commit to if, if money wasn't an object, what, what do you think it would be? Um, well, first, I think I would move out of, I want to say I would move out of art writing um, to maybe something that's more art adjacent. Uh, I think the subject that's really preoccupied me probably for a decade, but more recently now, and I think a big part of that is being in this particular region of the world or in the UAE, or in Dubai is a question of terroir and cultural production, um, a word that always causes me stress in pronouncing. Um, but, you know, just as you have a belief that, uh, I don't know, wine or cheese, you know, have a particular flavor because of the soil, because of the climate, because of the, and a particular moat in some caves, you know, that affects the taste. Um, and I think in literature, you have the kind of, maybe spurious idea of national character or national literatures, you know, Russian literature is grim because their weather is cold and depressing, for example, things like that. Um, so I'm very interested in how climatic um, qualities affect cultural production in general, um, art in particular, um, and not necessarily just natural ones, but um, here, I think some things that these are natural, like, but here there's a, what I was thinking about earlier as petromateriality. There's a very pervasive, and I think it might be psychologically pervasive, um, smell of, let's say, petrol here, or the smell of AC coolant, you know. I don't, these are, might be things from a more developing city, because it's a very fast developed city, a more developing Dubai that I remember and projecting to the future or into the present, um, but all of these atmospheric um, conditions, you know, and you have a little bit, of, little bit of this happening, interestingly, in Southeast Asia, around the idea of tropicality and the kind of production that happens in kind of wet heat, humidity, 
a certain level of rainfall. Um, and I think the qualities are different around here, but that's something basically how really it's, it's, it's an extension of thinking about specificity of place, but not just, you know, all the cultural and historical scaffolding of a place, but the, um, the very physical, what's the word, environmental conditions of it. Um, and those are also obviously time bound. So that's what I would think about, um, in general, I want, I think I've gotten to a place of not taking risks. Um, I think, uh, I feel like I'm doing a lot of, not service journalism, but kind of the equivalent with art writing. I'm doing a lot of writing about other people instead of perhaps about my own ideas or like I would like to be just doing different kinds of maybe more essayistic, um, just not about other people in a way but just about uh, different things. I think I would like to be doing more of that kind of writing. Um, and I would like to be working on, I think this, all of this is a general move away from choppy feeling writing from articles, perhaps from uh, reviews, from short things. Um, I would like to be working on not necessarily books, although I think there's also not a pressure. You know, I think getting out of a certain point in my 20s, being around kind of New York publishing, that was very healthy because there's this expectation of being young and brilliant and precocious, you know, <laughs> and then you age out of that and you're like, well, great, now I can I get to work, you know. <laughs> that, that's what it felt like. But um, mm. I think I do still have the feeling that, you know, I am in, I'm 33, like, shouldn't I have a book by now? Not necessarily, mm. but I think I would like to, it doesn't have to be a book. Book is probably too long right now for my attention span, maybe even, but I would like to work on longer, slower things mm -hmm. um, and just get out of the do so much mentality, which right. I just don't need to do. Right. Mm -hmm. And that kind of responsive, like, you know, forever yeah. responding to rather than choosing mm -hmm. um, yeah. subjects for yourself. I can appreciate that. I think that might be one of the um, rougher edges of, of success, really, in a field. Mm -hmm. Um, that is so demanding and the turnover is, is uh, so quick as you can find yourself just constantly saying yes or no, as the, as the case may be, rather I than... I mean, also, uh, also, Sky, there's electing. no way out of art criticism, you know, the lifelong positions. I don't know if I'd want to do that, but those positions are being eroded. You know, a lot of those people are relatively older when they retire or perhaps die. I don't know that those staff writer positions will, or mm -hmm. staff critic positions will still exist, you know. I've been having this conversation a lot with people in different parts of the world. There's no way, the way out of art criticism is to pivot, right? It's to become a curator, is to work as a copywriter, which I've been mm -hmm. doing more of in Dubai, because it's like, wow, I do this writing and they pay me much mm -hmm. more. This is wild, you know, mm -hmm. just a very simple thing. Um, I think what I'm struggling with now is the fact that art writing seems to have a shelf life, you know, in terms of sustainability more than anything else, perhaps in the art world that's mm -hmm. time-based. Um, and you can keep doing it forever, but I don't know that people do. I really can't think of mm -hmm. anyone who hasn't moved to something else mm -hmm. or doesn't have a staff position and is, is still writing, especially as a freelancer. People just mm -hmm. don't stay in it. And I already feel like I've stayed in it longer than others do, mostly. Sure. I sort of wish that I saw more uh, people move from writing to producing, you know, mm -hmm. entrepreneurial efforts I, are 
understandably um, scant in this space because mm-hmm. it takes so much to start a thing and we're almost always uh-huh. working from a place of deficit but um, as art writers but I you know I think of what actors often do if you listen to mm-hmm. actors in interviews you know of a certain age they talk about you know uh, no longer wanting to be puppeted and have mm-hmm. having some control behind the camera instead or, or producing and I, okay, we don't see that that same kind of escalation or not escalation but um mm-hmm inflation say in in art criticism or not as often mm-hmm. and by producing future... do you mean becoming an artist or let's say starting a space or right becoming part of the infrastructure I meant more like a publisher in okay. that case yeah I mean if we're feeling frustrated by you know for instance the the aspect of um these major art publishers that you touched on earlier, uh, freezing their freelance budgets mm-hmm. in a pandemic at, with, you know, that's what the right hand is doing and the left hand is posting black squares on Instagram. So there's just this mm-hmm. total, you know, erosion, not that for many of us, there was much further to erode, um, mm-hmm. of trust and faith in some of those larger platforms. I, I just think there's so much space now for mm-hmm. smaller arts publishers to move into, and um, and a kind of urgency, you know, it, talking like this can get so flat because the ubiquity of it um, mm-hmm. is is all pressing. But because of the urgency of this moment, I think criticism has a real foothold in our cultural conversation mm-hmm. that maybe even a few years ago it didn't. I don't know. I I, for, I remain optimistic that this could be a sort of revitalized space by smaller producers by smaller publishers whatever that looks like and to me the urgency is in non-english criticism mm-hmm. um kind of english being a default but in a couple of places i've traveled to and just having criticism actually reach people you know there's some countries in which english is accessible to a small mm-hmm. portion of the population um some countries where it might be the the language like a lingua franca as it were but mm-hmm. um I think what I'm most energized by are efforts to produce, yes, non-English criticism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I think that will be the way. But something I've been thinking about increasingly is who I'm writing for mm-hmm. and how much, on a kind of need-to-know basis, you know, I'll go and I'm not a investigative journalist or that kind of reporter. I think especially in this region of world, there's not necessarily room for that mm-hmm. in very many places. Um very often, you know, I might know an institution's plans or big news that's coming next year or the year after, you know. Right. I think someone else, I mean, for sure, a journalist flying in from the U.S. would take that news and report it, like, or maybe feel obliged to do that. And I often think, like, how much do people need to know or who is, you know, who is this for or who is, you know, because mm-hmm. all the art writing in international publications is for a certain audience and it's it's like travel writing it's to make something legible and consumable to that particular audience um right so that's something i think about a lot like what needs to be explained yeah just how much do they need to know do you like writing you know when i'm in it once i've once i've gotten my first line probably actually yes i love finishing mm. yeah. a piece that's satisfying but once I get into it, I think I actually do. I would have immediately said no, but I've realized that, like, this is fun. 
once I get there. Yeah, yeah. And that's recent. I've never enjoyed the process before. That seems very encouraging. (laughs) Um, When do you typically write? Oh, boy. Um, So I think typically, again, everything has changed recently. Typically, it's been in the early hours of the morning. I feel Mm. like I've really only worked better at night, Mm. um, naturally. But um, again, it's, it's a kind of outcome of doing different kinds of work doing some copywriting while in Dubai, having to, you know, be available by phone at 8 a.m., that mm-hmm. now I just do it during the day. It's mm-hmm. so not ideal. Um, if, right, like now, I'm kind of slammed with more deadlines than I can handle, I'm going to end up writing through the night, and I'm more efficient that way. But, yes, other things make me write in the day now. Mm-hmm. How much do you delete in so far as do you in so far as do you edit as you go or after you have written? Uh, I think I definitely edit as I go, really. And this again might be a function of I've been trying to change this lately, a function of really writing something a day or two, mostly the day before the deadline. Mm-hmm. Um, I would always like to leave room to edit later. But even when I do do something and give it a few days buffer room. When I look at it later, I really don't. Mm-hmm. You know, I do a final scan for for typos. Um, I check, you know, I do like a, a light copy and I check, I check names. I change spelling to UK or US as necessary, but I don't really edit very much at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But really as I go, which is why it feels like it's, it's slow. Yeah, no, I'm the same. Um, how do you know when you're done or when a piece is done? I hit word count. <laughs> that's, a short, that's a short answer um I mean I think when it feels when it feels right like I think at least a third of the way in I have a sense of things that I want to say hopefully mm-hmm. um and so one when I feel like I've covered covered those kind of beats probably mm-hmm. um not when it hits word count when I've got it down to word count very often I write much more mm-hmm. than less than I needed and have to Mm -hmm. cut it down. So that is editing down, I guess. Is there a text that you want to write, but no, you won't for some reason? And if so, is that something you'd be willing to kind of describe? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, Again, this is a not art thing. I think there's a lot of stuff about the UAE that I would like to write and there are some texts about the UAE that I would like to write when I have a different nationality I'm not that I have one from here but when I have Mm -hmm. a a visa stable just because things can be prickly Mm -hmm. um so it's not art related but I think it was it would be the kind of thing of let's say maybe when my parents don't live here anymore Mm -hmm. if that's the case or just things that could be potentially prickly Mm -hmm. um I have a different visa residency visa or residency or passport things like that. Um, and it's, and just texts about the kind of politics of the area and of the Gulf. What is the pleasure of writing? Finishing. <laughs> <laughs> That's well said. Yeah. Um, I really appreciate this, Rahal. Is there anything that I didn't touch on that you would want to go over? Not really, but I do have a not an ad for, I feel like like a snake oil person, but you know, something that I've started doing recently, which I think a lot of writers do, and I did a version of before, but which didn't make a difference, is, is this thing called morning pages, where you just kind of 
vomit out whatever you're thinking. And that has, again, not to sound like like a car salesperson or like, you know, a late night infomercial, but that has really, just really, really radically changed my writing practice and writing life and just the amount that I'm able to write or the speed or just getting the kind of nonsense out of the way. Um, Can you describe it a little bit more in detail, what, what that looks like? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think the idea is that you, you do it in the morning. I don't usually, but I try to do it relatively soon after I wake up or when I start the work day, which is sometimes in the evening. Um, basically, you just write for, not for a time, but for space for, let's say, three A4 pages. Um, sometimes I do less, like if I've been doing it for half an hour, one hour, um, that's probably enough. And you just kind of write everything that's on your mind. Like for me, very often it's like, oh, I want to buy this thing online. And just kind of talk, almost talking to yourself. Um, the idea mm-hmm. is that you don't edit, you don't go back, but you just kind mm-hmm. of keep writing. I think there's probably some psychological hand, you you handwrite it, hand to mm-hmm. brain thing. But I feel like I just, I feel like the hours that I spent trying to get to begin a text, um, it kind of clears, it feels like a mental clearing, you know, mm-hmm. a kind mm-hmm. of sweeping and it helps me start writing faster, mm-hmm. much, much faster. I feel like I'm able to sit down and write after mm-hmm. that, um, like begin a piece, mm-hmm. um, which I didn't wow. expect, you know, before that I was doing something is like, let me write every day for a timed period, 10 minutes, 20 minutes. And for some reason, changing time to space or amount as fast or slow as you want to um, really just change things radically, even though it seems like you're doing the same thing, writing for about mm-hmm. the same amount of time. Well, that's very cool. We've had a couple. I don't think um, Johanna Fateman called the morning pages, mm-hmm. but there was a similar, I think it was from The Artist's Way. This, yeah, I uh, think that's what it is. I've never read it. I've just seen me neither. Like, a productivity like blog post or something and being like, okay, yeah. let me try it. Everyone yeah. knows about it. And yeah. Well, I love to have a recommendation that's a, an unexpectedly upbeat note maybe to end on. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking this time to talk to me, Rahel. I really appreciate this. Mm-hmm. Momus the Podcast is edited by Jacob Irish. We would like to thank Rahel Ama for her contribution to this season. And special thanks to all those of you who are supporting the podcast. You can find us at patreon.com backslash momusart or contact me about making a one-time contribution at skygooden at momus.ca. This has been episode 38 of Momus the Podcast. <laughs>